Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Well, welcome. Hi, I'm Mark Brumley with Ignatius Press. What do H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, Edgar Allan Poe, and a nine-foot blue bug all have in common. <laughs> we could say they might have a lot of things in common, but for our purposes today, they are all characters in the new novel by David Pinnell called Providence Blue. Uh, welcome, David. Thanks so much, Mark. This is really a pleasure and an honor to be here. Some of you uh, will recall uh, Dr. Pinnell. Uh, he's the author of a book we talked about some months ago called The Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch. He is now Emeritus Professor of Religious Studies at Santa Clara University and author of many books uh, in addition to Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch. And we're here talking to him today about his book, Providence Blue. Uh, David, uh, I was a little taken aback at the beginning. I didn't quite know how to characterize your book as, as the lead in there. Uh, I had to think about it a little bit. Uh, tell us about this book, which is uh, curiously titled, curiously charactered, and subtitled A Fantasy Quest. Yes. Well, thanks so much, Mark. Um, yes, this is a complex book. And um, partly, uh, you could say that uh, it's an affectionate look at my hometown, I am originally from Rhode Island and uh, was born and uh, grew up the first part of my life in Providence. And um, by curious coincidence, although as the novel says at various points, the world is too small for coincidences. But um, when I was young, I frequently went to uh, a library called the Providence Athenaeum. It's one of the oldest continuously functioning uh, libraries in America. And um, that library, the Athenaeum, was frequented by H.P. Lovecraft. He used it as a kind of study hall for working uh, on his books and checking references. And interestingly, uh, a century before him, Edgar Allan Poe frequented the Athenaeum. Now, uh, folks who are enthusiasts of Poe may be aware of the fact that, you know, he's from Virginia and the Baltimore area, but he would take the train. Edgar Allan Poe frequently took the train up to Providence because he was involved romantically with a woman named Sarah Helen Whitman, who was at that time one of the most outstanding transcendentalist poets of New England. And they would have their romantic assignations <laughs> in the stacks of the library called the Athenaeum. And, um, you know, when I learned these- Where things, else, of course. You know, where else, <laughs> yes. I mean, literary romance come to life. Um, and it turns out that H.P. Um, Lovecraft corresponded uh, and in, you know, very frequent contact with the foremost pulp action author of the 1930s, Robert E. Howard, uh, best known for Conan the Barbarian, um, but there are many other works of his which are actually even more interesting. And so at one level, this is a tale set in the 1930s that um, draws together um, Lovecraft and um, Robert E. Howard, but it looks back towards the time of Edgar Allan Poe and Providence. 
Um, but I want to say that really this sort of um, spiritual focus in the novel has to do with what I would call um, the longing that all of us have for a second chance. Because okay, now you're, you're getting into the spiritual, so I want to pause you just okay. for a second, because people may still be grappling with the idea of H.P. Lovecraft, horror writer, Conan the Barbarian creator, Howard, uh, and Edgar Allan Poe in a novel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then we didn't say anything about the big blue bug. No, not yet. Yeah. Okay. We, can, yeah. we can hold off on the big blue bug if you want. But, yeah. you know. It's all in there because, all right. So, so, just the so, these are, so these are real people that really lived and you've incorporated them in your novel. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And, and um, the way that it works is that um, uh, the no much of the novel takes place in the 21st century, the present day. And to summarize that plot line, basically. Um, Be careful of spoilers here. An assistant librarian um, newly arrived at the Athenaeum. Faye McConnell is the name of this fictional character, um, discovers um, manuscripts that shed light on an event that actually happened on June 11th, 1936. And as a matter of historical record, and this is the opening episode in the novel, Robert E. Howard, who was always a tempestuous and brooding kind of Byron-esque figure, <laughs> All right. Um, went into a kind of emotional spiral and um, despaired of being able to create new stories and um, shot himself. And um, I use that as a starting point to ask the question um, what happens to us in the afterlife? Are there possibilities for second chances. And so um, in terms of the plot, and again, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil it, but what happens is that um, H.P. Lovecraft, and for those of you who are familiar with his stories, you may be aware of a fictitious magical um, grimoire or book of magical spells called the Necronomicon. Um, <laughs> he, Lovecraft uses the spells in the Necronomicon to ensorcel, to snare the souls of the suicidal Robert E. Howard and the soul of Edgar Allan Poe, who basically drank himself to death in Baltimore in 1849, and brings the two of them together, Poe and Robert E. Howard, and sends them off on a quest into the past to retrieve ancient artifacts, which will serve as a defense staffing the portal, the galactic portal to keep out the hordes of the alien Cthulhu. And mm -hmm. anyone who's ever been <laughs> exposed to um, uh, the psychotropic world of HP uh, Lovecraft may right. have heard of Cthulhu. You know, these are um, basically Transdimensional uh, beings. Yeah, well said. Um, which do not wish us well. Hmm. And um, in the novel, what happens is Faye McConnell, present day librarian at the Athenaeum, when she stumbles on these manuscripts shedding 
in this glimmering light on episodes from the past set at the very library that she's now working on in the present day. She calls for help on various individuals, including a Jesuit priest, Father Jim Cipriano. Um, and with the presence of Christian figures, such as Father Cipriano, what you have take place in the novel is basically a kind of opposition of worldviews. Because in my understanding, H.P. Lovecraft has a view of the world that's essentially Gnostic. And by Gnostic, I mean one that implies that this world of ours, this material world is of no real worth, partly because of the fact that um, Lovecraft denied the existence of any deity, any God that could possibly be benign or wish us well in every way. In other words, Lovecraft saw the world as essentially populated by cosmic beings that at best are indifferent to us or more likely are actively hostile to us. And um, opposing that is the Catholic Christian worldview, which is sacramental in the sense of espousing the view that if we look carefully, if we learn the arts of spiritual attunement, I'm thinking here of people like the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, if, we, if you look carefully, you can see um, the signs of God's gracious presence everywhere. And so at a theological level, you, there's really uh, a kind of um, uh, dispute, uh, struggle between these worldviews. And that picks up with what is going on in the kind of afterlife journey experienced by Robert E. Howard, where he is hoping fervently for a kind of second chance to be able to make up for the life that he so rashly threw away. Interesting. So I, 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 I put you on hold when you started to talk about the spiritual dimension or the spiritual storyline, because I, I kind of wanted the setup, you know, because the setup is itself rather amazing and fascinating. And so then to, then to turn to the spiritual side of it and say, well, now that we've got the setup out, what's the possible Christian uh, dimension to this. And I think you, you did a good job of, of kind of articulating that a bit in terms of the struggle between the, the, the various worldviews. There, there probably are some Christians uh, and Catholics even uh, who uh, are at uneasy at best with the fantasy, fantasy genre. You know, they might like Tolkien because they've told they're told he's a Catholic and they've been uh, helped to see or otherwise have come to understand certain Catholic motifs or at least motifs in Lord of the Rings that resonate mm -hmm. with that um, Catholic worldview. And likewise, C.S. Lewis, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, people will say, all right, well, I, I get that there's there's Christian imagery there. But more generally, you know, fantasy fiction and even some elements of horror uh, that are in your story and certainly in the stories of some of the characters you draw on, they're going to say, I don't see how that fits. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's, uh, you know, that's, and that's um, uh, a very valid question. And I would say underlying the question is a kind of anxiety. Mm. Um, a lot of people who have spoken to me and I have been contacted by individuals who, you know, since the book came out and there is a kind of anxiety like, you know, and I think the anxiety is, 
If I exercise my imagination, am I putting my faith at risk? Mm. You know, and I would say that um, and here I'll borrow from Tolkien. In the end, you know, because we all come from God, you know, we are subcreators, and so there's a sense in which, you know, like a heliotrope, we're unconsciously oriented towards God. You know, we can be tempted and distracted, of course, of course, but. Um, I do think that if one has a sense of the Catholic Christian faith to begin with, you know, one can use one's faith, you know, to sort of test what one reads. In other words, here's the thing. Even a bad book can inadvertently provide good guidance if we learn how to read against the grain. Ah, talk a little bit about that, because that's a fascinating idea. Yeah. In other words, and what I mean by that, Mark, is that... Um, when you think about my book here, I'll hold it up for the benefit of the camera for a moment, right? I have, I have my copy too. Yeah, yeah, okay, right. Okay. And it says right on the, right on the label, right? A fantasy quest, you know? And so, you know, I try to identify it as such to indicate that, yes, there is a speculative dimension. Here's where the speculation comes in. H.P. Lovecraft, in many ways, I regard his worldview as quite destructive. So a question that people have asked me is, you know, why draw any attention to him at all? Well, the reason why is because of the fact that I feel that unconsciously there are many people in our society who drift towards the kind of worldview that Lovecraft has. They don't want to engage with the world because they basically don't think the world is worth the effort. Right. Lovecraft indulges that. And I would feel nervous if the only aspect in a person's imagination, so to speak, were exclusively Lovecraft. That would not be a rich diet. You know? right. What you can do is to put Lovecraft in conversation with other authors, with other figures, with other worldviews, to establish a context that brings out not only what Lovecraft's worldview was, but what's the problem with it, right. why, why it is destructive. And so that's what I mean when I say that the question is to learn to read against the grain. When I was very young and read Lovecraft, of course, he was fascinating to me, partly because of the fact that, um, as I mentioned in a piece that I wrote for Catholic World Report, you know, he's, you know, he suggests that there's more to life beyond the surface of things. Okay, well, that's, that's a starting point. Um, but then what's troubling about him is that the worldview that he offers is so negative. Now, he was of interest also because of the fact that he set so many of his stories in streets and in institutions that I knew very well, you know, as a, as a native Rhode Islander. Um, as I got older, I felt like, you know, um, I want to see if I can talk back to him, you know, and um, see if I can construct a story that makes affectionate use of what I grew up with, but that pushes back against some of the things that are less than helpful. Uh, interesting. Um, on this topic of uh, uh, how people respond to genre literature, I guess they're, and especially fantasy or horror or things of that sort, um, there's one kind of Christian or Catholic response that's sort of indifferent. You know, it's, well, it's, I just read it. It's a good read or it's not a good read. And, and that's it. I'm, I'm not affected by it any more than if I read a murder mystery that would make me a murderer or interested in murdering people, that kind of thing. So, so there's that kind of response. And, and I actually think at some level, 
that that's the right response and even a healthy response. It can also come from a kind of place of indifference that somehow our imaginative life uh, can be wholly separated from uh, how we our actual worldview and our actual faith commitments and so on. So there can be a danger there. And then, of course, the other side, we, we've already talked about the uh, thinking that uh, I can never indulge this. And sometimes when I have these conversations, and I do have a lot of conversations with people on this topic, I'm brought back to the fact that so many believers uh, don't read Scripture the way they ought to read Scripture, because if you read, you know, within even a modicum of, of imaginative imagination intensiveness yeah. to what's going on. If you read G our Lord's encounters uh, with, with people who are demon, demon possessed, those are scary things. Now we know how it comes out. He triumphs over the, but just the idea of, of encountering someone who's demon possessed. Yeah. If you think about that for a moment, you see how there's a terrifying element to it. And we should read that as terrifying. You read things in the book of revelation or you read things in the old Testament. And even with respect to kind of uh, differing takes on life, I mean, uh, you know, there are different, there are, you read the book of Job or, you know, you, you read uh, different portions of the Old Testament that are reflecting a kind of almost um, nihilistic perspective on things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have to be able to understand that there's a full range of human experience that's recorded in salvation history and in scripture. Scripture is not espousing those things, but if we're going to really um, benefit from their being there, we have to sort of give them their due. Well, that's right. There's the same thing go goes on with it, with these kind different kinds of literature. Yes. I think that's an excellent point, Mark. And the thing is, when you look at scripture, um, for example, the first, first chapter the gospel of mark you know and the spirit drove jesus out into the wilderness if we accept the notion that jesus was fully human as well as fully divine and if we accept what it says at the end of the second chapter of luke you know that the young jesus grew in wisdom right then that suggests that um Jesus had to deal with a lot of things that he himself could have experienced as frightening or disturbing, you know, you know, when he's in the desert for 40 days, he undergoes the temptation. He is among the wild beasts, you know, right. and um, I don't I don't think it's wrong for us to engage our imaginations trying to sort of enter into sort of like spiritual exercises entering into. Um, you know, the world standing beside Christ as he's experiencing these things. After all, the sacramental worldview posits the idea that, you know, God has created this world partly as a means for us to be able to engage with spiritual realities. And so I would say that actually, um, when it comes to the things that we read for entertainment, um, again, this goes back to what I was saying about Lovecraft. Um, that even things that we just think of as sort of disposable throwaways, you were mentioning murder mysteries, that even when we read things that the author might not have intended as spiritual, right. I often ask myself, okay, what is the worldview implicit here? You know, um, it may be that an author writes something and doesn't particularly intend for it to be a philosophic, you know, religious meditation. 
nonetheless, you can sense the worldview behind the work. At least I, I believe that. You can say something, you can see, perceive something about the author. And so as we look at the author's worldview, you know, there are many authors writing who um, they're, they're not being as, as positive or constructive as they might be. But if we learn how to sort of push back and sort of, you know, as we engage imaginatively, we can say to ourselves, okay, um, yes, you know, this is interesting. It's interesting to read it. Um, but all the time, you know, as I read, I'm saying to myself, okay, so now um, what does this say for me in my life? You know, even trashy stuff that I read, you know. Um, you read trashy stuff, David? <laughs> well, you're projecting, of course. You're speaking of someone else. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I am speaking of me in the sense that, for example, Robert E. Howard, you know. <laughs> but what's interesting is that as you read through his work, as you read through it, you do see uh, a coherent worldview emerge. In some ways, you know, uh, it can be off-putting, but there are other ways in which there's something um, uh, tragic about it. In the, and by I mean tragic in the sense that he is striving for a kind of nobi nobility, really. And when I say nobility, I mean the sense of making our life into something meaningful. He tried to do that too, I believe. And what I do is based partly on um, a memoir by um, basically a, a romantic figure in his life, Noveline Price. She was a young woman who dated him, and she wrote a memoir about the experience later on, and I draw on that for the novel. Noveline Price, this young school teacher from Texas, who in the novel tra travels up to Providence to try to untangle the mystery of what happened and to confront Lovecraft, and some pretty frightening things happen when that uh, encounter takes place. I won't say the least. <laughs> yeah, the least, yeah. Um, that as I looked at um, the record of his life and how he tried to explain himself and present himself to his girlfriend, to Noveline, um, you know, I realized that even in the lives of people who do not identify as, as Christian or as religious in any way, they too are trying to, um, I would say, they too are trying to lead a religious life. You know, as I have often said to my students, Everybody is religious. They may not be conscious of it, but everyone is religious if we understand religion as um, a, a seeking, a quest for that which is meaningful, that which is the source of the holy. Okay, And by the holy, I mean that which gives order, pattern, and meaning to our life. And in that sense, all of us are religious because we're all seeking order, pattern, and meaning in the, in the broadest sense. Well said. Um, I want to kind of riff on that a little bit. We're all seeking order and meaning and so on. We're all religious in that way. Why is it, do you think, that for some people today, their quest is taking them in the direction of people like Lovecraft? There's kind of a Lovecraftian revival yeah. uh, going on now. What is it about uh, Lovecraft that you think yeah. well, uh, is appealing to some yeah. people? Well, Lovecraft is a 20th century manifestation of the Romantic movement, I would say. And the Romantic movement, I mean, you know, the, the quick one-line definition of the Romantic movement or Romanticism, Romanticism is spilt religion. <laughs> you know, and I think that's true. 
the romantic movement comes out of this. I mean, there are certain eternal things about human nature. We seek out the divine, consciously or unconsciously. In the late 18th and early 19th century in, in the European world, um, the time of the French Revolution and industrialization and urbanization, um, traditional framework of religion began to disintegrate um, for a variety of reasons. We, that's a whole separate discussion in itself. But that framework began to disintegrate, and yet the desire for connectedness with the divine remained. That desire for connectedness with the divine remained. Romanticism responds to that by basically saying, hey, you don't need the institution of religion. You can do it on your own. Sufficiently sensitive souls can touch the divine on their own. I think that explains why so many romantic paintings depict a poet brooding among the ruins of the choirs of a church and things like that. You know, that's, you know, sort of a classic motif. Um, the only difference between the genre of romanticism, say romantic poetry, and horror is that the horror genre, like romantic poetry, they both promise revelation. They both promise to peel back the divine that is peering just beneath the surface. Of course, what the horror realm says that when you peel back the surface, the revelation that you get is horrific terrifying okay but nonetheless even if it is twisted even if it's gnostic it's still addressing even if in a faulty way it is still addressing the hunger that we have for the divine for a sense of meaning for a sense of some kind of hint of understanding of why the world is the way it is the more that our society spins into this age of infinite distractibility mm -hmm. you know, with limitless social media apps and all the rest of it, um, the more people are going to feel that anxious hunger you know, for connection. Um, Lovecraft is one attempt at that. As I said, I think it's um, taken by itself. It is negative and unhelpful. So what I try to do is to address those currents and put them into conversation with Christianity, especially with the Catholic sacramental worldview, through the characters that I assemble in this novel, Providence Blue. Okay, now, so you mentioned the, the priest character, and of course we've already talked about Lovecraft and Howard and, and Edgar Allan Poe and uh, Noveline and so on. Who are some of the other characters? Okay, so um, among the other characters in the story, I should mention, um, the Reverend um, Gladys Trevor, <laughs> a fictional character. I, I like Gladys Trevor. <laughs> yeah, 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 she's good. Um, she's the pastor of the First Baptist Church in downtown Providence. And um, among other things in the novel, this fictional character, Pastor Gladys, she's a biographer and historian, and she specializes in the life of Roger Williams. Now, fans of New England history may recognize the name. Roger Williams um, was um, basically a part of the Puritan pilgrim movement. Right. Um, he was expelled from the colony of Massachusetts. Um, he was labeled a heretic freethinker, okay, 
And um, so he fled seeking freedom of conscience. He fled from the colony of Massachusetts uh, across the Seekonk River to the lands of the tribe of the Narragansetts. The Narragansett tribe was a group of Native Americans, Indians, who had befriended Roger Williams. Um, he's a remarkable figure, Roger Williams, by the way. He's someone who's an enthusiast for studying what he called the languages of America, Native American languages. And um, so uh, he flees to uh, cross the Seekonk. Um, he's the person who establishes the city of Providence. And Roger Williams named it Providence because of the fact that he felt that he had been providentially looked over by God. And in the story, okay, what I do is I take some favorite reading of mine, um, a work written by Roger Williams called A Key into the Language of America. What a wonderful title. Published in 1643. Um, and if, if you love early history and if you love languages, it's just wonderful to see Roger Williams puzzle over <laughs> the language of the Narragansetts. And anyways, I use it as a starting point um, to suggest um, <laughs> uh, an unpublished portion of the manuscript discovered by Pastor Gladys. A lot of man lost manuscripts in this novel. And um, Pastor Gladys and Roger Williams lead us to another dimension of the novel, which I think readers will be intrigued by. That is the strong presence in the novel of Seraphim. There's a strong angelic presence in the novel. And I don't want to say too much to spoil it. Yeah, don't give that don't give that away because that's I won't give that away. I'm saying that the, the angelology in the novel ties in with the writings of a Catholic mystic saint named Catherine of Genoa whose writings and other world experiences of purgatory and heaven are directly relevant to the experiences of Robert E. Howard in the afterlife. Okay. Good, good, good Catholic tie in there. Yeah. Um, you, there, there are also, there's also younger characters. So just talk a little bit about those folks. Yes, exactly. Get the full big picture. Yes. And so actually someone I haven't even mentioned yet, Joey Bonaventure. Joey Bonaventure. I love that name. Yes. Joey Bonaventure is um, an aging ex-punk rock star who had his own band, uh, ran into a number of difficulties, uh, and is having trouble coming to terms um, both with his own personal legacy and with the dissertation that he's trying to write, the graduate school dissertation that he's trying to write on H.P. Lovecraft. Joey Bonaventure inadvertently becomes a mentor to a, uh, a teenager named Augustus Gusty Tassario. <laughs> Gusty Tassario is struggling with an addiction to opioids, specifically to fentanyl. Mm. And um, I can just mention that um, I've known a number of people personally over the years who have struggled with similar things. And so that actually, that layering of um, uh, problems with drugs and so forth is another stratum in the novel. Um, and bewildering as it might sound, um, 
the plot lines, I think, do flow together <laughs> in the story. And um, what, part of what I struggled to do in the story, and which I had a lot of fun with, is showing different aspects of life in Rhode Island, both from the 17th century, from the time of Roger Williams, from the 19th century, time of Edgar Allan Poe, from the early 20th century with Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, and the 21st century of today, all of it animated by this question of a Christian response to the horror worldview of H.P. Lovecraft. Well, that is fascinating. Of course, there's so much more when you actually read the story. I, I got to read the quote on the back by um, uh, Ron Hansen. Uh, David Penold's fantasy quest is indebted to Providence's hometown horror novelist, H.P. Lovecraft, but it outdoes him in its cleverness, fast pace, multiple excitements, rollicking good nature, and overall sanity. That is entertainment at its finest. Unquote. You know, coming from Ron Hansen, who's you know no uh, schmuck when it comes to writing novels. You know, that's quite a compliment. I have to tell people, although you've done a good job of sort of unpacking a lot of the ideas uh, in this story, uh, it is a a very fast-paced, fascinating read, and people are going to love it. We are just about at the end of this interview, but I can't let you go away without you saying something about the big blue bug. Okay, so um, another another stratum in the story has to do with what I would call the industrial dimension. uh, my younger brother and I um, spent quite a bit of time working in various factories in Providence as teenagers ourselves. And so um, part of my um, sort of affection for the city has to do with an actual artifact. It is a 58-foot-long, um, a nine-foot-high metal termite, okay, <laughs> Painted blue, it's known as the Big Blue Bug, and it is perched to this day on top of the roof of this business, used to be called New England Pest Control. Now it's called Big Blue Bug Solutions, okay? (laughs) And, And that giant metal termite, which any Rhode Islander can point out to you, it's very visible from Route 95 as you drive by in Providence. That 58-foot-long big blue bug plays a substantial role in the story. Of course, I don't want to reveal too much of exactly yeah. how. <laughs> but you've got to get everybody's got to get Providence Blue to find out about the role of the big blue bug, <laughs> which is significant in this wonderful story with H.P. Lovecraft and <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe and Robert, Robert E. Howard, and yeah. so yeah. many other interesting characters. David, thank you. This has been great. Uh, We look forward to having you back to talk about not only uh, your fiction, but other things in the future. And uh, we we appreciate people who want to get this book, and that should be everybody who's watching this or listening to this. Uh, You can go to your local Catholic bookstore and ask for Providence Blue, or you can go to Ignatius.com and other places where great books are sold. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. It's always a pleasure. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos 
at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.